Yes, today we are starting a new sermon series, and it centers around the question of, is God really fair? God, are you really fair? This is a question I think many of us would instinctively say, yes, of course God is fair. I mean, he, he's God. He, he's perfect. He's never done anything wrong. Of course he's fair. Yeah, at the same time, we look at the world around us and see a lot of difficult circumstances, and they really can call into question, okay, God, where are you in the midst of all these challenging things? When we look at a massive hurricane that slams against the East Coast and, and causes billions of dollars in damage and is still up, uh, causing upheaval in people's lives, we wonder, well, God, where, where were you in that? We look at tsunamis that seem to come periodically around the world, and just in a moment's time, they can kill over 100,000 people. God, where are you in that? We look at sectarian violence that seems to constantly be going on someplace in the world and kills millions, if not tens of millions of people over time. God, where are you? You look at the plight of the orphans that we talked about last week, 147 million orphans worldwide without parents. God, why are you allowing that to happen? Look at, look at for instance, cancer. How, how cancer can ravage people's lives and how it can claim their lives much earlier than it seems like they should pass away. God, where are you in that? And we could go on and on and on about these circumstances in life that we look at these circumstances and we wonder, God, where are you in this? You say that you're good. You say you're powerful. You say you love us. How come you aren't doing more about these difficult circumstances? This is a really difficult question to, to ask and to answer. And this is a question that's very common uh, among people, not just today, but throughout human history. And today we are starting a new sermon series that looks at that question and it focuses on the book of Habakkuk. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to Habakkuk. Now, you may be wondering, okay, where in the world is Habakkuk? Use your table of contents. Uh, It's near the end of the Old Testament, but it's such a short book that if you try to flip through and find it, odds are good you might be there for quite a while looking for it. So use your table of contents, find Habakkuk, uh, I think it's about the fifth book from the end of the Old Testament, and put a bookmark there so that you can find it during the next few weeks. This, this book has three chapters, we're going to be spending three weeks on it. And as we start on this book, I want to give you a warning. Habakkuk is a prophet, and prophets oftentimes contain a message that is not very comfortable for us to hear. You see, prophets are spokespeople for God. That God speaks through prophets to take a specific message, usually to a specific people, and that message usually has something to do with repentance. It's a message that goes to people who have been wandering from God, maybe blatantly turned their backs on God, have forgotten about Him, and God is saying, you all come back to me. So it's usually not a very comfortable message, but I think it's an important message that even today we need to hear, because if nothing else, the message of the prophets reminds us of God's holiness and God's justice. Even as we're examining these questions that sometimes seem to call God's justice into question. So we're going to be starting today in Habakkuk chapter 1. And as we do so, I invite you to please pray with me. Our Father, uh, your word says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that we may be equipped for every good work. And as we look at this obscure book today, a book that many of us probably haven't read in a long time, if ever, We pray that you will help us to see this book that was written some 2,500 years ago still has incredible relevance to our lives and our society today. So we pray that you'll speak to us through this prophet Habakkuk, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to start out by looking just at verse 1, the very beginning. 
It starts out by saying in verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. Now, a logical question that may be in your mind is, okay, who is Habakkuk? Well, Habakkuk is a prophet. But beyond that, we don't know a whole lot about his personal life. We do know that he was a prophet to a, a region called Judah. Judah was the southern part of Israel. But beyond that, we really don't know much about his personal life beyond what's contained right here in these three chapters. But we do know some of the historical context in which Habakkuk was ministering. You can see the historical context if you read Second Kings, uh, especially chapters 22 through 25. You see, First and Second Kings, if you were to read those, you'll see that there are a bunch of ups and downs. As the nation, as the kings, as sometimes the kings are sometimes wicked, sometimes they're, they're good. Uh, the, the determining factor on whether or not a king is wicked or good is do they do what is right in God's eyes? And sometimes the nation of Israel and Judah are following God. Many times they are not. And here in these last chapters of Second Kings, we see both the ups and the downs. First of all, we see here it's a, it's a message addressed to Judah, that southern part of uh, the nation of Israel. And we see that a man named Josiah became king. He called Judah back to God. Josiah, uh, during his reign, the book of the law, the, the, the Old Testament, was found in the temple. And the, the Old Testament had been neglected for many years, even a couple generations. People had forgotten God. They'd wandered away. And suddenly the book of the law was discovered. And it was read to Josiah. And he was cut to the heart. And he realized we need to return to God. And so throughout Josiah's reign, he was very active in calling Israel back to God. And Israel, or Judah, in a very significant way, came back to God. But then Josiah was killed in a battle. And a few years later, sometime around 600 B.C., one of Josiah's sons, Jehoiakim, became king. And he very quickly began leading Judah astray. Uh, he was not a godly man. He didn't, wasn't very good for Judah's society. And over time, several political things happened in Judah that were not very good for the whole country. They were conquered, first of all, by Egypt and then by Babylon. And Jehoiakim continued to be the king during this era, but he was more of a puppet king that the Babylonians ruled through. And over time, over the years, society became more and more corrupt. And Judah was just in utter turmoil, and they'd turn their back on God. Society was breaking down, and that is the context in which Habakkuk lived. And that's the context of what we're going to see here in this passage. So I want to move on in this passage to see what's going on here. We first of all see a complaint that, God, that Habakkuk's raising to God in verses 2 through 4. Habakkuk says to God, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so, ju so that justice is perverted. So we see here in verse 2 that there's a, a cry um, that, that Habakkuk is letting out against a corrupt society. He, he is very upset about what he sees going on, and he's asking God, why aren't you doing something about this? There are problems all over the place. How long are you going to take before you do something? I mean, you say that you're good, you say you're powerful, yet there's all this corruption all around me. God, will you please do something? Where are you? 
I think this is a very common mentality that we even have many times today. We see tsunamis happen. We see planes fly into the World Trade Centers. Um, we see all the, all the problems that happen, the health problems, all kinds of different things. We wonder, God, where are you in the midst of this? That's the exact same thing that Habakkuk was facing some 2,500 years ago. And he goes on in verse 3 to describe what's taking place. He describes injustice, wrong, destruction, violence, strife, conflict. He's basically saying here, look, the wicked are ruling over the vulnerable. The godless are oppressing the godly. There's so much murder. There's so much strife. There's so much rape going on. There's so much mayhem in our society. God, when are you going to do something? In verse 4, he says, therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. So what he's talking about here is the, the law of God, God's word. It even seems like it's paralyzed because no one is paying attention to the things that God says. He's saying that, look, the religious institutions, they're corrupt. The political institutions, they're even more corrupt than the, politi- than the religious institutions. I mean, we look at the police. They're supposed to uphold the law and enforce the law, but instead they're breaking the law. Look at the attorneys. They're supposed to be seeking justice, but instead they're only seeking their own profit. The judges, rather than making sure that justice is lived out in the society, well, they're just uh, building themselves up. Look at the government leaders. They should be caring for the needs of the people and the cares of the people. But they're only in it for their own gain. There's corruption all around, Habakkuk is saying. And when you see this, it really sounds quite a bit like today's society, doesn't it? I mean, I don't think that we're quite on that same level of depravity that Judah was at that point. But at the same time, there are a lot of echoes today that, that, uh, to what Habakkuk is experiencing here in Judah some 2,500 years ago. I mean, think about watching the news. Any given night, you turn on the news, you see stories of murder, of theft, of rape, of government corruption, of corporate greed, of, of religious scandal. I mean, there's all kinds of junk going on all around us. I think about the political ads that were on TV up until this last, just a few days ago. I mean, I'm very thankful that they're done now, but the political ads made me begin to wonder, is there anyone in our political system who operates with integrity? Is there anyone who's really operating with the best interests of the people in mind, or is it more just for their own gain or more for their own agenda? My dad, he's a dentist in Missouri, and a few years ago, he was involved in, in trying to get some legislature, legislature passed there in Missouri that would um, affect dentistry. And the group that he was involved with, with doing this, um, they, they quickly discovered that if they want any government official in Missouri to listen to them, to try to get this bill introduced and then passed, they had to contribute money to the campaign fund of the government official. I mean, if they contributed money, then the person would come and talk with them for a few minutes. If they didn't contribute money, well, no one's going to listen. My dad quickly got, um, got frustrated with that. Um, but, and I don't think that corruption is just in the state of Missouri. I, I think it's all over the place. Corruption is prevalent, and that's what Habakkuk was crying out against. And, and I mean, I want to point us back to verse 3. He says, why do you tolerate wrong, God? Why do you tolerate wrong? He's basically saying, look, I'm a sinful human being. Uh, I, and, but I can still see that there are problems in the society. God, you're a holy God. Why, if I care so much about the problems in the society, does it seem like you really don't care? You aren't doing anything about this, God. Why do you tolerate 
such violence? Well, let's move on to verses 5 through 11 where we see God's answer to Habakkuk's question about why he tolerates so much. But God's answer isn't quite what, what Habakkuk was hoping for. Listen to what God says. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and a dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They are like a vulture sweeping down to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own strength is their God. So God starts out with verse 5, saying, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Now, this is a verse that is oftentimes taken out of context. I call it one of those coffee mug verses because it seems like these companies that create Christian paraphernalia for Christians to buy love to put verses just like this, including this exact verse, on coffee mugs and nice cool-looking posters with a nice nature scene. And they try to make it into some uplifting, inspirational verse that's just all heartwarming. Oh, God's going to do something really cool. I mean, I see this all over the place with this particular verse. Let me read you a post from a blog. This blog is from a Christian woman who speaks at Christian conferences to women all around the country. Earlier in 2012, she wrote a blog post about what she came across in Habakkuk 1, verse 5. She quotes this verse about, look to the nations, you're going to be utterly amazed. I'm going to do something amazing that you never even imagine. Here's what she says. In Habakkuk 1, 5, I kind of imagine that scene as I imagine a very tickled and excited God position his majestic self squarely in front of me, cup my chin in his strong hands and say, daughter, prepare yourself to be utterly amazed. She then says, Habakkuk 1.5 is the word God gave me for 2012. She goes on then to explain how she's so excited to see what God's going to do in and through her and through her ministry and in women's lives in 2012. And then she closes this blog entry by saying, And when we see what God does, we will cry and we will giggle, because that's the kind of God we love. Now, the mentality that she has there, I, I think, is very good in terms of, um, I mean, she's excited to see God work. She has a great heart uh, to see God work in people's lives, to draw them to himself, to transform their lives, to give them true life and hope. But she's taking this verse completely out of context. That's why it's often I'm said that when you're studying the Bible, the three most important words are context, context, context. Because God is not so- talking about something that's going to make you giggle, or is going to tickle you, that's going to warm your heart, or going to be a lot of fun. He's talking about he's going to bring another nation, a ruthless Babylonian nation, to destroy Judah. That is what he's going to do. Not something very heartwarming or very fun, is it? And that is definitely not the response that Habakkuk expected here. Because when you read this description of the Babylonians, you see that they're very vicious people. 
They won't let anything stop them from getting what they want. They were one of the preeminent military powers in the world that day. Not one of the preeminent military powers, the, the best, the strongest military in the world of that day. And they were a godless people. They would do whatever they want. If they wanted your house, they would come and kill you and take your house from you. If they uh, wanted your town, they would come and take that town. If your neighbors uh, next town over go and, and, and go to the judge in the court and say that what they're doing is wrong, well, the Babylonians would probably come through and kill the, the neighbor. They would kill the judge. They would, they would, they would kill the attorney. They do whatever they want. And you may say, well, that's not fair. The law says you shouldn't do that. Well, one of the practical things we need to understand is that you are, if you don't have the ability to enforce the law, the law for all practical purposes has no jurisdiction. And the Babylonians, God says right here to Habakkuk, they're a law unto themselves because they are so strong, no one on this earth is resisting them. And God's saying here, these, these Babylonian people, they've been conquering a lot of other nations. I've been holding them back from Judah. But I'm now going to allow the Babylonians to come in and conquer you as a people because of the sin that's taking place in your nation. Now, obviously, this would probably make us very, probably right now, this probably makes us a little bit uncomfortable. We're like, God, why would he do something like that? And you think about how Habakkuk was probably feeling in that case. He was probably thinking, God, I know I was praying for you to do something, but this was not what I wanted you to do. I would have rather that you just send a prophet here and let him, um, let him call people to repent, and then they'll turn around and we'll all live happily ever after. Well, God had already done that. Not only was Habakkuk a prophet in Jerusalem, so was Jeremiah at that same time. Jeremiah is one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. I mean, there were many, many chapters of the things that God was speaking through Jeremiah to Judah, calling them to repent, yet they did not. So now God is ratcheting it up a notch, saying, you all need to turn back to me. I want to go on in this passage to see what Habakkuk's response is to what God has revealed. Verses 12 and 13, Habakkuk says, or, yeah, Habakkuk says to God, O oh Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O oh Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O oh Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Now, first of all, what I see this is being, it's, it's really a confused confidence that Habakkuk has. There's a confidence that he has from knowing who God is, from knowing God's character. He starts out declaring God's character and his promises. He says, God, you are from everlasting. You are the eternal God. You're the creator of everything. You rule over the earth. He says, you're the holy one, that your eyes can't look on evil. So you are set apart from evil, God. You're going to make the right choices. And I see how you're going to use Babylon in order to discipline your people. And there's an intimacy going on here as well. He says, my God, my holy one. You can see that he knows God very well. And I think this is instructive to us that when we're facing challenges and upheaval in life and we're wondering, God, where are you? A great place to start as we're trying to figure out what to do is to start by going to God and, and just declaring even to ourselves and to God, God's character and his promises. But he's saying in verse 13, 
look, I know that we have problems, but they're even worse than we are. Why are you using them, those pagan, ruthless people, to come discipline us? I know we're bad. We're not that bad. So that's where we're going to end off today's passage. Not a comfortable ending. We're going we're gonna, to come back next week. Um, next, week won't, next week might be a little bit more comfortable. Then the following week will be more encouraging. But this is the message of a prophet. So I have a question for us. What are we going to do with this passage today? What are we going to do with this passage? Well, let me give us three things that we need to do. First of all, we need to humble ourselves and pray. Humble ourselves and pray. This passage clearly declares that God is a holy God. He is a just God and that we are broken, sinful people. And that we deserve judgment and wrath. But God says that we need to humble ourselves and turn, turn to him. I think of Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, where God says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. You hear that call to seek God, to humble ourselves, to pray, to repent. That is what God's calling us to do through this prophet Habakkuk. If we are going to be trivial with God and trivial with sin, it's like playing with fire that at some point we're going to get burned. Now, I think it's easy to compare ourselves with others and say, well, we're really not that bad compared to them. But we need to recognize that really there are no good guys or good women, morally speaking, except for Jesus. Jesus is the only one. And I think that this, this idea, this topic from Habakkuk and from Second Chronicles 7 has a lot of relevance to us as Americans. I think America has a lot of pride. And that's not always healthy. I, I'm very thankful to live in America. I've traveled a variety of different places around the world. And each time makes me very thankful to live in this country where we have freedoms. We have a ton of blessings. Even on this Veterans Day, I'm very thankful for the men and women who have fought and sacrificed in order to, to secure the freedoms that we enjoy. But we also need to recognize that we need to make sure that we are following God. And, I mean, we look at America's history. Obviously, we have some problems and corruption now, and it's really been the case throughout America's history. I mean, sometimes we look back at the Founding Fathers and say, well, that was kind of the golden era. They were really seeking God. Not always. And in fact, let me just give you one uh, case in point. A significant percentage of the Founding Fathers owned slaves. And they were complicit in one of the worst institutions of human degradation in world history. And throughout America's history, we have continued owning slaves. I mean, yeah, officially it stopped in the mid-1800s. But the, the segregation and the oppression has continued, even to present day. I mean, it eased quite a bit about 50 years ago with the Civil Rights era. And we Christians are significantly responsible for that. You think about the part of the country that was the biggest proponents of slavery and of segregation and oppression, racially speaking. It was what we know today as the Bible Belt, the southern part of the United States. That's the place where um, the strongest or the strongest concentration of Christians are. But that was the part of the country that was oppressing people more than you see almost any other time in world history. We need to humble ourselves and pray to God and repent and seek him. And also to allow ourselves to lament, just like Habakkuk is doing here. 
to go to God when we're seeing challenges and hardships and struggles and say, God, I don't like this. Please help me to trust you. Please help me see your perspective. But I don't like it at all. That doesn't challenge God. I mean, we aren't supposed to go to him and accusing him and saying, God, you're sinning here. God, you're wrong. That, that's, there's a problem there. But it's very appropriate, like a backache or like the psalmist, to go to God and say, God, I don't like this. God, this doesn't make sense. God, please change this. Lamenting is very healthy because it helps us cling to God even through the midst of the hardest of circumstances. And finally, we need to make sure that we're prioritizing God's first priority. There are a lot of things that God does not really prioritize that much that we do. Our own security, our own prosperity, um, our, our nation's well-being. I mean, these are, these are some nice things. But God's first priority is that people would worship him and treat others with love and faithfulness. I think of another uh, prophet, Micah. In Micah 6.8, it, it gives a very clear description of what God's first priority is. Micah 6.8 says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. This is a picture of what God's first priority is for us. I think it's really well captured in the up and out triangle that we use here at Freedens, talking about how we have the up relationship with God. Walk humbly with your God. You have the in and out relationships. Micah 6.8 would say, uh, love mercy, act justly. And love God and love those around us with the gospel at the center. I am so thankful that we have the gospel that we don't have to bear the brunt of God's wrath like Judah did. But that if we turn to Christ, he's already taken the wrath that we deserve for our sins. And that's why we put the gospel at the very center of that triangle and the center of everything we do. So I want to encourage us to turn fully to Christ, to humble ourselves, to pray, to lament as needed, but make sure that we are focusing most of all on worshiping God and allowing the other things to be secondary. Now in closing, I want to remind us of a famous quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a slumbering world. Pain is God's megaphone. He works through the challenges and the hardships, and I think that's one of the reasons why he even allows the, the, the really, really severe problems to come upon Judah to call him back to himself. My son, Micaiah, when he wants to get my attention, he'll start by saying, Daddy, Daddy. If that doesn't work, sometimes he'll come over and, and grab my leg, or a couple times he's even grabbed my face and turned my face toward him. One of the other common things that he says is, Daddy, look Caius' eyes. Look Caius' eyes. He wants me to look at his eyes to know that he has my attention. And that is what God is doing through the hardships and the challenges in our lives. Whether they're relatively small, just little frustrations, or whether they're huge. God wants to use those hardships and challenges to open our eyes, to get our eyes on him, and to follow him. May we heed the call to follow him faithfully. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you're a God of grace. We, we are in such need of your grace, God, because we are a sinful people. As much as we like to think that we're doing well, as much as we like to compare ourselves with others and think, well, at least we're not as bad as they are, we still have much need for grace and mercy. We thank you that you've given it to us through Jesus on the cross. And Lord, we want to lift up our nation, thinking of Second Chronicles seven fourteen, that if we humble ourselves and pray and turn from our wicked ways and seek your face, you will heal our land. 
God, in the wake of, of elections, in the wake of just all kinds of political messes that have taken place, we do want to pray for our leaders. That's what we're commanded to do in Scripture. So we pray for President Obama. We pray for the Congress. We pray for the state government. We pray even for the local government, Lord, that those who are governing will govern with an integrity and that you will work in their lives as individuals and corporately to turn them wholeheartedly to you, recognizing that their primary responsibility is not to themselves, it's not even to the people, it's to you. God, I thank you today on this Veterans Day for those men and women who have sacrificed dearly for our freedoms. We enjoy them very much, and we oftentimes take them for granted. But we thank you that we do live in a nation that has these freedoms. And we're a nation where we can freely worship you most of all. We pray that you will protect these freedoms here, that we will not take them for granted, but that we will use our freedom to worship you wholeheartedly as individuals, as a congregation, and even as a nation. We love you. And thank you for your great grace, even while we are sinful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.